source. Um, the Bible Project uh, videos that we've been watching from time to time, they have one on Second Peter. Again, less than 10 minutes. They're going to give you way more information than you can absorb on Second Peter in a really creative way. I would encourage you that. Third resource, pray. While you read or listen to the Bible read to you, pray. Pray and ask God to speak to you about your life, to show you who he is um, as you go through it. So uh, let's practice what we preach this morning. Let's, before we open 2 Peter, let's pray. Okay. Lord, pray this morning that this would be of value for us as people who love and follow Jesus. Um, help us do that with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Use these good words from Peter to help us in that, we pray. Amen. All right, uh, this, we're going to start in 2 Peter, first chapter. It's only a matter of time before I refer to it as 1 Peter. It's 2 Peter, but we've been there so long. Starting in the first couple of verses, very dense, rich section of Scripture, including the introduction, which reads like this, Simeon or Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Jesus, and of Jesus our Lord. It's an easy portion of Scripture. Just kind of skip over and say, yeah, 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 it's Peter writing to some folk. But it's, he really says some important things that are foundational for what he's about to say. Notice how he introduces himself. He's a servant or a slave and he's an apostle, and the order matters. Humility, then authority. This is the leadership lesson right out of the gate. Humility precedes authority in the church. Humility is first, so that Christ can be rightly exalted over his church and her leaders. Um, John Piper was helpful for me this week. I have several quotes from him today. He says, all of verse 1 has a tender ring of humility and love about it. Peter does have authority, but he bends over backward to meet them as a brother and serve them rather than lord it over them. We must remember this for ourselves, lest our position go to our head and we forget that we are slave as well as pastor, slave as well as deacon, slave as well as trustee, slave as well as teacher, Executive, doctor, lawyer, merchant, supervisor. So Peter is a servant first, and then an apostle. And he writes, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Okay. He's writing to, another, to believers, um, to a church or churches, um, believers, he says, who are equal in stature. And he could have in mind they're equal in stature with him as an apostle. And another great evidence of humility by Peter. Or he could be, he's probably writing to non-Jewish believers, to Gentile believers. And he could be saying to them as well, they are not second class in the kingdom. But as, as we often say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? Equal stature with Peter and the Jewish believers. And this privileged place in the kingdom comes, he says, from the righteousness of Jesus. Okay. Not our own righteousness. We don't earn this place. That's why it's equal. 
It's Jesus' righteousness that puts us there. We have our place in God's people by Christ's righteousness. He says, and he is our God and Savior. This is one of the most explicit statements about the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. And he prays for them. He says he wants them to have increased or multiplied grace and peace. And that increase comes from one thing. It comes from knowing God. Okay. This is foundational for Peter as he writes. That the, pe the people that he's writing to know God. That they know God, the truth about God in a doctrinal sense. They also know God truly in a relational sense. The Bible uses this word this language of knowing as relational intimacy. When a husband knows his wife, knowing carries relational weight with it. So those of you who are students of the Bible at the seminary or the college, let me urge you, pursue Christ, not just doctrines about him. Pursue Christ. Okay. Now those of you who are not students at the seminary. Let me urge you, dig deep into the scriptures, okay? Don't leave it to the professionals, okay? Dig deep. Attend one of our life change classes and go deeper, okay? Read good theology. Yes, you don't have to be in seminary to read good theology. And here's a guy who's the rare theologian who speaks English. His name is Michael Reeves. Um, he wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity. It's incredible. It's an introduction to the Christian faith. It's one of my favorite works. Very influential for me. He also wrote this one, um, Rejoicing in Christ, that focuses on Christ. You can read him and understand him. Okay? He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. So, grace and peace are to be multiplied to you, Peter says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowing God, that's the recurring theme in this letter. It's the foundation for everything that Peter says. So this morning, it's a really important question. Do you know God? Do you know God? Do you know the truth about God well? And do you truly know him as, as a father? Both of those kinds of knowing are needful for us to experience what Peter's writing about. It all flows from a true relationship with God, anchored in the truth about God. So after, his, after that introduction, he says, um, God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Peter says it's by God's power that we live the Christian life. Not our own. We're not on our own. Okay. God gives us power to live the life he calls us to. He's just said we are God's people. Not by our own, own righteousness, but Christ's. And now he says we're empowered to live the Christian life. Not by our own power, but by Christ's. By God's. And Peter here is laying a foundation of grace to the Christian life where we lean on God, not our own strength. His, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means we have the power 
to live life as Jesus followers. Okay. That power is not in us. We are needy people. We need God's enablement to live this life. And Peter says, we have it. If you know Christ, you have the power to live the life that God is calling you to through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So before anything, the key to the life that Peter is challenging us to live is knowing God, okay? The truth about him and a true relationship of faith and love with him. And through that relationship, he says, we've been given amazing promises, precious, very great promises, Peter calls them. And through those promises that God has given to us, we can become like God. He says we can become partakers of the divine nature. He's not saying we become a God like some religions say, but we become like him in our character. He is saying we become Christ-like. It's by God's faithfulness to his promises that we become like Jesus. Then he kind of turns around and he says it the other way. By these same promises, we escape the corruption in the world because of sinful desires. Because they are better promises. John Piper says sin makes its attack by holding out promises to us for our happiness. If you lie on your income tax return, you'll have more money. You'll be happier. If you divorce your spouse, you'll be happier. If you brag about winning the game, you'll be happier. If you don't upset your relationship with your neighbor by sharing Christ, you'll be happier, and on and on. Sin will always win the battle, he says, unless we have the luscious carrot of God's promises hanging clearly in front of our noses. Unless we enter our day armed with one or two precious and very great promises, we will be utterly vulnerable to temptation. But if we hold before our eyes the astonishing things God has promised us now, And in the life to come, his divine power will be present, will escape corruption, will be conformed to the image of his son. He says, therefore, I urge you, search this book, the Bible, for the promises of God and hang them like a carrot in front of your eyes so that they lure you away from sin and toward the likeness of God. We are lured away from sin because God's promises are greater than the promises of sin. And they are sure. God keeps his promises. You know, this is throughout scripture. Numbers puts it this way. God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he act, does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? God's promises are sure. They are surer than the continents. Let me explain that to you. Australia, I don't know if you knew this, Australia is moving, right? Um, All the continents are moving a bit here and there. Australia drifts 70 millimeters to the northeast every year. Now, it's it's far too slow for anyone to notice, but that journey is starting to mess with systems that rely on pinpoint accuracy, like GPS. So Australian GPS was last updated in 1994, according to this article. The entire country has moved a little more than five feet since then. So 
Much of our current technology relies on accurate GPS coordinates. Driverless tractors that help with farm work will start having problems because the information about the farm won't line up with the coordinates coming out of the navigation system. Imagine if your tractor is five feet off when it goes around the barn, right? <laughs> For Australians using driverless cars, five feet is a big deal if you encounter a driverless car. Shipping drones. Accurate map information is fundamental. And the writer says, everything on earth changes, including the mighty continents. But for believers, there are three foundational things that will never change. God doesn't change, his word doesn't change, and his promises do not change. These are settled forever. Okay? His promises are sure for you. Take hope in that, right? God's promises are for you, and they are sure so what promises of God are you hoping in and clinging to? Again, listen to this word of encouragement. Very practically, I think this means we must day-to-day -day go to the word of God and search for great promises. Fix one or two in your mind, hold them there before you all day, and use them to overcome temptation to sin and to incite you to daring acts of righteousness and love. I'll post on our leader blog um, this week a, a short article by Zach Eswine. It's very helpful. He says, praying God's promises sounds something like this. Speak the promise to God. First, Lord, you say that you are near to the brokenhearted. Second, find yourself in the promises. Lord, I am, I am brokenhearted. Third, apply the promise. This means that you've promised to be near to me. Fourth, give thanks. Lord, thank you for being near me. Fifth, get honest. Lord, I don't feel your nearness. Lord, will you make your promise felt to me? Sixth, he says, take hold. I wait for you, Lord. I take heart that what I do is not, um, what I do not feel is true nonetheless. You are mine, and I am yours. You are near me. I am not alone. And then he says, testify, when someone asks how you're doing, you include the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I'm counting on that promise. Okay. It's a real practical way to claim the promises that God has made to you. There's another great resource, and I'll post this as well. Um, it's called Take Words With You. And a pastor named Tim Kerr has simply organized the promises of God, printed them out for you, for you to pray. Super helpful resource, absolutely free, the best kind of resource, right? And that'll be available to you, or you can, just, you can just search for take words with you, and you'll probably find that work as a PDF online. Peter is urging the promises of God on us. We neglect them to our peril. They're the foundation for what he's about to say in verse 5. For this very reason promises of God. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, a lady named Glenda Lennon and her husband, Robert, had gone to um, 
Homosassa Springs in Citrus County, Florida for a holiday weekend on the Gulf. Their 21-foot boat was just two miles offshore when Glenda donned her mask, flippers. She jumped into the warm, shallow waters to do some spearfishing. She says, I got in and paddled around about 15, 20 feet from the boat. She said after about 20 minutes or so, she started to swim back but noticed the boat moving away from her. She was being swept away out to open sea. She called to her husband, who was a championship sw a swimmer when he was in school. Robert, she says, I'm not going anywhere. She was fighting against an eight-knot current. Glenda was about 50 yards from the boat when Robert jumped in after her. By the time Robert reached his wife, the current had gotten stronger, pulling them both farther out into the gulf. He decided to swim back and get the boat and come back around to pick up his wife. He told her to stay calm, just keep treading lightly and everything would be okay. And Glenda said it took her husband more than six hours to reach the boat. Fighting the current all the way. She said he and the boat looked like tiny specks before I lost sight of them. And by now it was nightfall. And Glenda was tiring and she was frightened. She saw no lights on the water. Waves began to get higher and higher. And early the next morning, she saw a tiny speck of a boat in the distance. She said, he circled around me for hours before disappearing. He never saw me. Her legs and arms began to blister from being in the sun most of the day before and the second morning. Twenty years later, she still bears scars from the ordeal. After her husband reached the boat... He had searched for Glenda but couldn't find her. He went to the shore for help, and the next day, one last effort of search, the search party finally found Glenda 20 miles out, 20 hours later, still alive. And here's the application to our text in 2 Peter. Christians who just float never stay in the same place. Christians who disobey these verses we're talking about in verses 5 through 7 and do not apply themselves with diligence to bear the fruit of faith drift into great peril. We must strive even to stand still. The tide of temptation is so strong in our culture. The effort towards virtue and knowledge and self-control and patience and godliness and brotherly affection and love is not dispensable icing on the cake of faith, the article says. If Robert had not swum with all his might, the boat would have gone out of sight and he and his wife would have drowned. So for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a huge promise here, right? We're looking for promises, Peter says, and he gives us one. If you make every effort to build these eight qualities into your life, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of Christ. These things both safeguard and confirm your faith. He starts out this by saying, for this very reason, and he's looking back at verses three and four. He says, strive, make every effort. But our striving must rest on God's provision. We pursue only in the power that God provides us. So be clear on this. We are not 
trying to earn God's love. We are trying to live a life worthy of having received it. Okay? Those are very different things. Again, John Piper puts it well. He says, there's a world of difference in a marriage where the husband doubts the love of his wife and labors to earn it and a marriage where the husband rests in the certainty of his wife's love and takes pains joyfully not to live unworthily of it. Peter's point is, God is for us with divine power. Of that we may be sure. Now in the confidence of that power, take pains not to live unworthily of his love. So here we are. We have radical, total dependence on God's power to live the Christian life pressed up right against, in the next, very next verses, a command to strive for all your worth to live that life. See, these things are intended to go together. It's like jelly on peanut butter, right? Inseparable. They must go together. And if your theology does not make room both for total reliance on God and absolute striving after God, then you probably need to tweak your theology. Okay? Peter puts them both happily and separately together. He says, if you don't grasp what I'm saying in the first chapter of 2 Peter, the call to make every effort to mature in Christ in dependence on God, the second chapter of 2 Peter is going to sweep you away like an eight-knot current. Listen to 2 Peter, how it starts, the second chapter. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Because of that reality that he's going to talk about in the very next page of his letter, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. Make every effort. You know, sometimes reading different translations of the Bible helps. So let's look at the HPV, okay? The Hawaiian pigeon version. He says... As why I like you guys go all out. You guys trust Jesus already, but no stop there. Every, every time do good thing, but no stop there. Know God mow and mow better, and no stop there. Learn for really mean what you say and do them, but no stop there. Every time you get hard time, hang in there and no give up, and no stop there, but do everything the way God like, but no stop there. Show aloha for the Christian brothers and sisters. And no stop there, but show love and aloha. That's how you guys got to live more and more. That going to make you guys know our boss Jesus Christ more better, right? No stop there, right? Don't float. Don't just float where you are. Press on. Paul, Paul says, Press on. 
to your faith. Trusting in God, make every effort to add virtue, to add moral excellence to your faith. But no stop there. To your virtue, make every effort to add knowledge, the knowledge of God and his good will for you. But no stop there. To your knowledge, make every effort to add self-control. But no stop there. To your self-control, make every effort to add steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. But no stop there. To your steadfastness, make every effort to add godliness. But no stop there. To your godliness, make every effort to add brotherly affection. But no stop there. To your brotherly affection, make every effort to add love. Even love for enemies. And Peter implies, you can probably stop there. That's the great virtue, right? Strive after these things. Pursue them for all your worth, like a gym membership in January, right? Go for it. <laughs> okay? How, though? How do you pursue a virtue? How do you become a more virtuous person? Um... Here's, here are um, three, three suggestions. One, start with one. Don't start with eight, right? Don't leave this room thinking, I'm going to shore up all these things this week, ramping up all eight of them. Pick one, just one. Start there. Secondly, <clears throat> Because this kind of transformation is radically dependent upon God, right? Um, mine the scriptures in the area that you want to grow. Become an expert in what the scriptures say about the vice you want to kill and the virtue you want to grow. We call it a sustained strategic soaking in the scriptures for the purpose of transformation. Find the Bible verses that address this area of your life and live with them. Meditate on them, memorize them, pray them as you ask God to be that kind of man or woman of faith, of love, of self-control, of perseverance, whatever your focus is. And I always, when I do these studies, I try to emphasize mentors in the scriptures who exemplify this thing. You, you'll, when you run across these verses, you'll find things that say things like, Moses was the most humble man to ever walk the face of the earth. Okay, There's your mentor. Find out why Moses was humble. Professor Daniel Taylor notes that as a child, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian martyr who was executed for resisting the Nazis in World War II, um, he was greatly moved by reading a book when he was young called Heroes of Every Day. It was filled with stories of courageous young people who with selflessness and clear thinking often saved others' lives, sometimes at the cost of their own. And apparently shortly before his execution, Bonhoeffer was also reading Plutarch's Lives, a book that explores the courageous character of ancient figures. And based on Bonhoeffer's example, this is what Taylor asks. He says, can we doubt that Bonhoeffer's reading shaped his acting, including his decision to risk his life to save others. Then he says, ethics are more formed by the stories which we surround ourselves with than just by the rules that are drilled into us. 
Tell us what stories you value, he says, and we have a good start on knowing who you are and how you will act in the world. So, if your virtue is faith that you think the Lord would have you grow in, you should go to Hebrews 11 and you should chase those stories of those people in the Bible. If it's virtue, you can't do much better than the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If it's steadfastness, the early chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel's steadfastness is stunning. Or if you leave these eight to some of the broader categories of virtue in the New Testament, if it's humility, I've already mentioned, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. He's a good place to start. If it's integrity, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus in the New Testament, is remarkable. If it's courage, there's always Esther. Become an expert in what the Bible says about the virtue you want to grow and the vice you want to kill. Delight in the, in the mentors who are there in their pages for you. And the third thing is pray these things. Make this a matter of prayer. You know, uh, daily, I pray, I pray prayers for, uh, to, be, to love better, to be more holy, and for the mercy of God to come upon me and to be shared through me. Every day, I pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. I use the prayers of others to help me. I use Wesley's covenant prayer and the litany of humility, and I use the back end of St. Patrick's breastplate because it's really long and the early part's kind of weird. Okay, so the back end of that is phenomenal. And all our pastors are trained and practiced in these matters. They're happy to mentor you. They're happy to come to your small group and encourage your small group in these matters. For Peter says, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8. If they are yours and are increasing, he says, that's, that's the measure. Not how close to perfect are you, not how do you compare with the person in the row in front of you, but are you growing these traits? Are, they, are you more like this than you were a while back or less? So where do you need to get your strokes in? From that list of eight, what would be your, what would be your top one? Faith? Patience or steadfastness? Love? Might not even be on that list, as I've already said. Might be purity or humility or compassion or patience or generosity or peace. What virtue do you need to grow in? What vice do you need to kill? Peter says, diligently go after that. Depending wholly on Christ. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities, in verse 9, is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So what if you don't live this life? What if you don't pursue these things? What if you're just floating? Professor Tom Schreiner says, it's like you have forgotten the cleansing of your sins and you'll start living captive to them again. Rolling around in the mire of your sin once again. See, the stakes are quite high. This is not something, this is an optional pursuit for believers. 
It is, Peter's just about to say, how you confirm your faith as genuine and are able to lay hold of those promises is yours. Verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers, and that's inclusive, right? The language he's using, brothers and sisters, we could say. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, he says, be diligent about this work. Go after it. Make this a top priority in your life. More than dieting, more than working out, more than your morning coffee or scanning the deals on Amazon Prime Day or tracking scores on ESPN. He says, be diligent on this. Building these qualities into your life. This confirms your calling as a Christian, he says. This is what real, authentic Christians look like. They're full of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. It's the mark of Christians. If you do these things, he says, you'll never fall. Not that you'll be perfect, but I think he says you'll never fall away into unbelief. These things are the marks of a sure faith. These things provide entrance into Jesus' eternal kingdom. They're the fruit of true faith. But it confirms your faith. It doesn't merit it. One writer put it this way. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are not the wages that we pay to earn entrance into the eternal kingdom. But they are the necessary evidence that our trust in God's promise is genuine. And in that way, they are confirmation of our call and election. And so Peter ends our little section with these personal remarks at the end. He says, therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so Peter, he's saying three things here. He says, one, I am going to badger you guys about this stuff. I'm going to always remind you of this. I'm going to say it again and again and again and again. I intend to always remind you of this. Then he underscores that, the importance of something oft repeated by saying, these could be my last words to you. I'm nearing the end of my life, Peter says. And this is the stuff that I want to leave with you. And then he says a third thing. He says, I'll make every effort to make sure after I'm gone you can recall them. And you hold that effort in your hands. This letter is his effort to make sure you don't forget. You can go back to it again and again and again. Peter says these are the things that matter in the Christian life. Go after them. So this morning, are you floating along or are you swimming hard? after these things, seeking to become more and more like Christ. Let's do the five-year test, okay? Are you more trusting of God and loving of others than you were five years ago? 
Is it, is it absolutely clear, the growth? What if you do a one-year test? Is your self-control better than it was a year ago? Are you better able to endure suffering than you were a year ago? The promises of God and the diligent pursuit of Christ-like character in radical dependence upon God yield that. That's what swimming looks like. Okay? That's how we swim in the Christian life towards Christ. If you're in a small group this summer, you're probably reading a book called Chasing Infinity by Mark Liedebach. Mark says this in that book. He says, keep in mind that while it may take thousands of acts and choices to become like Jesus, it begins with just one. And then after you make the first choice, it requires just the next choice. Each choice is vital. But the next choice is the only one that the Lord is asking you to focus upon. And he sent the Holy Spirit to help empower you to make the next right choice at that time. This is the discipline that brings about character formation and the development of virtues, act by act, choice by choice, minute by minute, day after day, along obedience in the same direction, empowered by the Holy Spirit with holy sweat. So, I've been extremely practical this morning, right? Stuff to read, blogs to look up, way to look at the scriptures, how to pray. You going to float or you going to swim? Let's pray. Lord, be kind to us. We love the inner tube and the lazy river. We love to float. That's the pull of our day. And yet here... The great apostle Peter calls us to something radically different. To swim hard after Christ and his likeness. In dependence upon these precious, great and precious promises. So Lord, help us not to leave and brush off the scriptures as we walk across the parking lot. May your Holy Spirit haunt us and press upon us in his kindness that which we must do to follow Jesus diligently in these things. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.